This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Now it is with great pleasure that I want to introduce my colleague, a mentor and an international expert in nutrition and cancer, Dr. Donald Abrams. He is the immediate past chief of our uh, hematology and oncology division at the Zuckerberg San Francisco General Hospital. He is an integrative oncologist at the UCSF Osher Center for Integrative Health and professor emeritus of medicine at the University of California, San Francisco. He co-edited the Oxford University Press textbook, Integrative Oncology with Andrew Weil. It's an excellent resource for those who are looking for something like that. Uh, and he served as president of the Society for Integrative Oncology in 2010. Um, I am really excited for him to share his expertise with you tonight. So without further ado, Dr. Abrams. Thank you very much, Kavitha. It's a pleasure to be here. And I do have a, a, a weighty topic. I'm going to talk about nutrition and cancer, do's and don'ts. And I have a few disclosures to make. I am a scientific advisor uh, to a number of concerns. So when I started seeing patients at the Osher Center uh, for Integrative Oncology uh, in 2005, I would tell patients that cancer is like a weed and someone else is taking care of their weed and it's my job to work with the garden and make their soil as inhospitable as possible to growth and spread of the weed. And I do that by looking to see how they fertilize their garden, that is what they eat and what supplements they take. So the importance of what we eat can never be highlighted too much. This is data from the so-called burden of diseases from the state of US health published in the Journal of the American Medical Association. And there are two charts. One is mortality that you're looking at here and below it is morbidity. And the number one risk factor for both mortality and morbidity in the United States today is so-called dietary risks, which surpasses tobacco use and high systolic blood pressure and does not include that large line number four, high body mass index, nor the low physical activity line further down. So if you put those three together off the chart, lifestyle, issues that really are accounting for morbidity and mortality today. Unfortunately, this article doesn't tell us what the components of dietary risk are. For that, you have to go back to a Lancet article published now 10 years ago. And the 14 components of dietary risk are diets that are low in fruits and vegetables, whole grains, nuts and seeds, milk, fiber, calcium, seafood omega-3 fatty acids, and polyunsaturated fatty acids, and diets that are high in red and processed meats, sugar-sweetened beverages, trans fatty acids, and sodium. What I use when I have my conversation with new patients are the guidelines that are updated continuously and published about every 10 years as a large volume from the World Cancer Research Fund, American Institute for Cancer Research. And they're guidelines for reducing the risk of cancer, but number 10 says after a cancer diagnosis, follow our recommendations if you can. So what I'd like to do tonight is go through these recommendations and see what data supports them and whether or not the changes that were made in the recommendations presented in 2007, uh, updated in 2018 are valid or appropriate. 
So with regards to nutrition and cancer dues, number one in uh, 2007 was to be as lean as possible without becoming underweight. And I think that might be a little bit of an incentive for people to become anorexic. I think the new guideline 2018, be a healthy weight, keep your weight within the healthy range and avoid weight gain in adult life is probably a better guideline. Unfortunately, most Americans do not meet this guideline. This is a, a map showing us the prevalence of obesity in our country. 30% of adults are now obese with the body mass index of greater than 30, and another 30% or so are overweight with a body mass index between 25 and 30. Only one third of adults have normal weight at this time. And the CDC estimates that overweight obesity is now associated with 40% of all cancer diagnoses in the United States, accounting for over 50% of all cancer in women and a quarter of all cancer in men and two thirds of cancers in senior citizens. So a very significant problem. And the American Institute for Cancer Research estimates that obesity related excesses of the seven cancers on the left account for approximately 115,000 preventable deaths a year in the United States. So the largest end there is for breast cancer because so many women have breast cancer, but only 20% of breast cancer, usually postmenopausal estrogen receptor positive is related to obesity. Notice that 50% of endometrial cancer is related to overweight or obesity. The remainder of the overweight obesity related malignancies are along the gastrointestinal tract, except interestingly, one quarter of renal cell carcinoma or kidney cancer is also related to overweight or obesity. So again, in addition to those listed, uh, this is what the American Institute of Cancer Research uh, believes are the associations. And note, interestingly, that uh, overweight or obesity probably decreases the risk of premenopausal breast cancer. So how does overweight or obesity increase the risk of cancer? Well, certainly for the estrogen receptor positive breast and the endometrial cancer, body fat makes estrogen. We think of the ovaries, the adrenals, but fat also makes estrogen. And body fat secretes cytokines, chemicals that promote inflammation. And an inflamed body is unable to really unleash the immune system to fight in the attack against cancer. And inflammation in and of itself, we believe leads to many of the degenerative diseases of aging, dementia, heart disease, and cancer. And again, we know from our current COVID experience that the obese seem to be particularly uh, susceptible to death from COVID and that's likely due to the impaired immunity. Personally, I think one of the most important and maybe the most important way that body fat increases cancer risk is that too much body fat triggers insulin resistance. And this causes the body to increase the production of insulin and insulin-like growth factor, both of which promote inflammation and the growth factor is a growth factor for cancer cells as well. To the point where we've now looked at blockade of insulin-like growth factor one receptor as a treatment for women with estrogen receptor positive postmenopausal breast cancer. So how do we deal with uh, body weight uh, increasing physical activity? I just want to highlight two points that uh, a study in six, 16 studies of breast cancer and seven studies of colorectal cancer 
survivors, approximately 50,000 people, showed that those who are most active with breast cancer lowered their risk of death about 30% uh, from their breast cancer and 50% overall. Similar findings in those with colorectal cancer. And survivors who report an increase in activity after their diagnosis also lowered their risk of death 40% more than those who did not. And we know from a number of studies that many patients would love to hear about physical activity from their oncologist. And as an oncologist who did practice conventional oncology for 38 years, the field of oncology is so explosive right now, you can't expect your breast or prostate or colon cancer specialists to keep up with physical activity or even nutrition, to be honest. So uh, unfortunately, a, a survey of Canadian oncologists showed that two thirds agreed that physical activity was safe and beneficial, but less than 50% ever recommended it and only one in four within the past month. And if an oncologist just recommends an increase in physical activity, that results in an increase of 60 minutes of vigorous walking a week, which definitely contributes to a more positive prognosis. So one of the other do's, one the other main do that's regard to food says, eat a diet rich in whole grains, vegetables, fruits, and beans. And this is pretty much the same as it was in 2007, although whole grains uh, subsequently became one word instead of two. So unfortunately, we very, fall very short on that recommendation. The CDC reports that few adults eat the recommended number of servings of fruits and vegetables a day. And that is a low number, in my opinion, uh, one and a half to two cups of fruit and two to three cup equivalents of vegetables. Uh, mainly women uh, are best at doing this. And if you look at the younger generation, 18 to 30 year old, very poor consumption of both fruit and vegetables. And that's counting French fries and ketchup as two different vegetables. So we do have a long way to go. And I think five servings is inadequate. I recommend my patients consume five to nine servings of fruits and vegetables each day, or two and a half to three cups. And I'm a big fan of phytoestrogens. Soy is something that baffles many people. I think soy is good for us if it's an organic, non-GMO, and a whole soy food. Soybean, soy milk, tofu, tempeh, or miso. And not necessarily soy cheese, soy turkey, or soy hot dogs. Those are heavily processed foods. Cruciferous vegetables, flowers grow in the shape of a crucifix, have many potent chemicals in them that seem to reduce the risk of cancer. So I believe we can really never eat enough cruciferous vegetables. Season with ginger, garlic, onions, and turmeric. My favorite beverage is green tea, second only to cruciferous vegetables in the potency of its cancer risk-reducing chemicals. And then nuts. People are afraid of nuts. They're too much fat, but I'm going to show you that nuts are good. So let me just uh, dwell on soy for a moment, because I do see so many women with breast cancer who are told to avoid soy because it's a plant estrogen and their tumor is driven by estrogen. Well, Tiarona Lodog, one of my favorite teachers and, a, and an incredible plant uh, botanist, uh, medicinal uh, herbal person, said that there is the, the most potent phytoestrogen out there is soy isoflavones, and they don't come close to touching a women's own estrogen. 
Soy decreases the risk of both breast cancer and prostate cancer in Asians living in Asia, eating an Asian diet, which has approximately a one portion of a whole soy food a day. There have been a number of clinical trials, epidemiologic surveys, observational studies, granted not placebo controlled, because you can't really randomize one group to tofu and the other group to placebo tofu. Many people think tofu is placebo to begin with. But in general, the Kaiser Life After Cancer Epidemiology Study uh, showed that soy intake at levels comparable to those consumed by the Asian population, that is one portion of a whole soy food a day, may reduce the risk of recurrence in women who have been treated with tamoxifen for their estrogen receptor positive breast cancer. And similarly, in postmenopausal women, also decreases the risk of recurrence by 50%. This study was confirmed in the Shanghai Breast Cancer Survival Study and also the Women's Healthy Eating and Lifestyle. All of them confirmed the benefits of soy in women with breast cancer. But I just want to make a point that it's not one food. And that's why I don't like people taking soy isoflavone or DIM supplements because it's not just one food, it's not just one chemical, it's the whole diet. And this was an interesting study I found in China where they looked at a thousand women with confirmed breast cancer and a thousand age match controls. And compared with the women who didn't eat uh, fresh mushrooms, the women who did decrease their risk of breast cancer uh, about 64%. And if they tried mushrooms, it decreased their risk 50%. But the important point is that mushrooms in conjunction with green tea increase, decrease that risk even further. So it's not just one food and it's probably synergy between different foodstuffs. And that was demonstrated clearly in this study of the Mediterranean diet in breast cancer patients. This was a study done in women uh, 60 to 80 years old at risk for cardiovascular disease. And they were uh, randomized to a Mediterranean diet supplemented with extra virgin olive oil, a Mediterranean diet supplemented with mixed nuts or a control diet and were advised to decrease uh, their dietary fat. Uh, over the course of time, 35 cases of cancer uh, developed after a median of almost five years. And again, th those patients who had the uh, Mediterranean diet with the extra virgin olive oil decreased their risk almost 70%. And the, uh, those who had the Mediterranean diet supplemented by nuts also decreased their risk by about 40%. Very recently, just uh, this year, there was another uh, publication from the Shanghai study where uh, women, uh, 3,500 breast cancer survivors were followed for over eight years looking for the development of recurrence or metastases. And they found that 10 years post-diagnosis, those women who consume nuts had higher overall survival. Doesn't look like a huge difference, but 4%, almost, yeah, 4%, 5% is, and it was statistically significant as well as disease-free survival. And this association was dose-related. So the women eating more nuts did better, and the association did not vary by nut type, i.e. tree nuts versus peanuts, or the patient's hormonal status. So those are my do's. And now let's turn to the don'ts, because they are a little bit more 
numerous than the dues in the American Institute for Cancer Research World Cancer Research Fund guidelines. The guideline number three in 2007 said avoid sugary drinks and limit consumption of energy dense foods, particularly processed foods high in added sugar, low in fiber, or high in fat. And in the most recent update from four years ago, this guideline was split into two separate components. So now it says again, limit consumption of fast foods. So shouting out fast foods in particular, because we are a nation quite addicted to fast foods and other processed foods, high in fat, starches, or sugars. And I really like this quote. They say processed foods, high in fat, starches, or sugars, embody a cluster of characteristics that encourage excess energy consumption. For example, by being highly palatable, high in energy, affordable, easy to access, and convenient to store. And, you know, as somebody who worked at San Francisco General for 38 years, my organic apple that I eat every day after lunch costs as much as a double cheeseburger, fries, and a milkshake. And that's unfortunate in this country that we uh, subsidize uh, the uh, cheap foods that are not healthy for patients and not foods that are. So does it really matter if you eat fast foods? This uh, study was done uh, in Europe. They gave the so-called Nutri-Score, uh, which is score for each food calculating uses its using its 100 gram content in energy, sugar, saturated fat, sodium, fiber, et cetera. Higher scores equal lower quality of the food. They evaluated a half a million adults in the so-called EPIC study, the European Prospective Investigation into Cancer and Nutrition in 10 different European countries. Patients have been followed for 15 years and they developed almost 50,000 incident cases of cancer, mainly breast, prostate, and colon, as we see here. High scores, which remember mean not a good diet, were seen surprisingly in France, where we consider their diet to be you know, pretty desirable, Germany, the UK, and Sweden, and the lower scores associated with healthier uh, eating were, were found in the Mediterranean countries, although Norway surprisingly also had a low score. And what they found was that the higher score was associated with a higher risk for all cancer. And that increased the risk 7%. And when I see something like that, even though it's statistically significant, I say, is it clinically relevant? And Chris Pollack, who's an administrator I work with uh, in my uh, 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 group visits, pointed out to me that, gee, 7% of a million people is a lot of people that you're protecting from getting cancer. So that's you know something to think about. And Europe has way more than a million people. So the rates for those countries uh, or those people who scored high were uh, much higher than those for low scores. And the higher scores, again, more fast food consumption, were associated with higher risks of colorectal cancer, liver cancer, and postmenopausal breast cancer in women, and lung and a borderline association with prostate cancer in men. There was also a higher risk of uh, stomach and other upper aerodigestive tract cancers uh, noted. The number three guideline in 2007 said avoid sugary drinks. And they changed it and moved it further down the list to limit consumption of sugar-sweetened drinks, drink mostly water and unsweetened drinks. Well, I was at the uh, 
meeting in Bethesda in 2007, when they unveiled that guideline, avoid sugary drinks. And I went to the microphone and I said, there are sugary drinks and there are sugary drinks. You can drink a cola beverage, God forbid, or a fruit punch, which is probably glucose and high fructose corn syrup, or you can squeeze three oranges in the morning. And the response I got from the podium was energetically, they're all the same. That was it. I didn't really understand it until I had lunch with Robert Lustig, our pediatric endocrinologist who deals with obesity in children and points out very loudly the downside of sugar. And he told me that if you eat an orange, the fiber slows down the absorption of sugar into the bloodstream. But if you squeeze the sugar away from the fiber, it's like drinking a cola beverage. So why is that bad? When the body sees that sugar, it responds with insulin, an insulin-like growth factor, both of which promote inflammation. And the growth factor, as I says, is a growth factor for cancer cells as well. So the average American consumes about 150 pounds of sugar or sugar uh, associated uh, condiments each year. Now, high fructose corn syrup has declined in uh, its appeal since we decided that it was not healthy at all, but still the amount of sugar consumed has not really changed. So what do we know about sugary drinks and cancer risk? Again, the French Nutrinet Santé study Uh, looked at 100,000 participants, and they evaluated consumption of sugary drinks, including 97 items with 100% fruit juice included, as well as artificially uh, sweetened items. In uh, their study, the uh, 100% fruit juices were the most frequently consumed uh, sugary beverage. And what they did was they found that the mean age in this cohort was quite young, 42 years, predominantly women, Uh, hence the high number of uh, breast cancer cases, but also a significant number of prostate and colorectal cancer. And they found a positive association between sugary drink consumption and the overall cancer risk. So increased almost 20% for each 100 milliliter a day increase in consumption. And that was uh, statistically significant for breast cancer, both pre and post menopausal. There was in this study a positive association between 100% fruit juice, increasing the overall risk of cancer 12%. Interestingly, artificially sweetened beverages showed no increased risk of cancer. However, I daily, daily, daily see patients asking me if they should drink this sugary drink to cure their cancer. These are all exotic fruits that somebody somewhere put out in social media that they cured their cancer drinking this or that. I say, no, don't do that, eat blueberries. And in Australia, in fact, they rank food in the supermarket for the consumer. And they recently dropped orange juice from five stars to two stars, ranking it below diet cola, which I never would recommend that anybody drink, right? So switching to diet soft drinks. Again, the EPIC study with a half a million Europeans again, predominantly women age 50, looked at uh, higher, found higher all-cause mortality among participants who consumed two or more glasses a day of diet soft drinks compared to consumers of less than one glass a month. And that was for the total soft drinks, sugar sweetened, tend to have deaths from digestive diseases, particularly uh, diabetes, 
And artificially sweeter uh, drinkers have deaths from circulatory or cardiovascular disease. But again, going back to the French Nutrinet Sante study, which was uh, just recently published this year, uh, they adjusted for multiple confounding factors, comparing non-consumers of artificial sweeteners uh, to uh, those who did uh, consume them. And they found that aspartame and acyl sulfate K uh, increased the risk of cancer. Uh, higher risks observed, again, for breast cancer and obesity-related cancers, ironically, uh, question of that maybe reverse causality. They're obese, so they're drinking diet soft drinks and the obesity caused the cancer, not the diet soft drink. Interestingly, they found no association with sucralose noted, but that's because very few of the people uh, in their study were consuming sucralose. So the investigators suggest that their findings that artificial sweeteners and excessive sugar intake may be equally associated with cancer risk. So I tell my patients, if they buy something that comes in a wrapper, it's okay to have sugars in the nutrition facts box. That sugar fuels our brain. Where I don't want to see sugar in a nickname for sugar, however, is in the ingredients list. Nor do I want to see such a long ingredients list. So this bar has 13 grams of sugar. However, the first ingredient is brown rice syrup, which sounds a lot like sugar. Then the ubiquitous soy protein isolate, followed by evaporated cane juice crystals, and then crystalline fructose. So sugar, 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 and six more lines of ingredients. On the other hand, we have another bar, which has 15 grams of sugar, even more, but the ingredients are cashews and dates. And now they have to tell us how much is added sugar, and when possible, that's best if zero. So I tell my patients, don't eat sugar. And my oncology colleagues say, why do you tell all of our patients that sugar loves cancer. And I say, what's a PET scan? We inject people now with radio-labeled glucose, and where does it go? To the cancer, because cancer loves sugar. It doesn't use oxygen for energy. Another no was also changed in 2018. In 2007, the guideline said, limit consumption of red meats, beef, pork, and lamb, and avoid processed meats. And in 2018, they changed it to limit consumption of red and processed meats. And I'll show you why I think that's incorrect. So this is a linear relationship between red meat intake and the risk of colorectal cancer in women. And this is an old graph. And New Zealand and the U.S. have been replaced by the Czech Republic and Japan in the upper right because we've globalized the Western diet to the point where everybody is eating standard American diet. And the reason I don't like limit consumption of processed meat is that the World Health Organization considers processed meat a class one carcinogen, no doubt about it. Bacon, salami, bologna, hot dog, sausage, anything you put on a pizza. So I actually was on a call with people from uh, the American Institute for Cancer Research. I really do appreciate their guidelines and I hand them out to all my patients. And I said, why did you change avoid sugary drinks to avoid sugar sweetened drinks? And why did you change avoid uh, processed meats to limit processed meats? And they told me that they were trying to meet people halfway, that they didn't want to give too restrictive guidelines. And I'm sorry about that. 
So what is the problem with meat? David Servan Shriver, a dear friend, deceased from a brain tumor uh, and French, so he spelled pork differently, demonstrates the uh, change in our food chain uh, because of what we feed animals. So in the old days, the ratio of omega-6, which promotes inflammation, to omega-3 fats, which are anti-inflammatory, was about two to one in most of the foods we consumed. But nowadays, you can see that the food chain is very different. And for example, in eggs, one of the most inflammation-promoting foods out there, uh, the ratio is over 20 to one. But in addition to the omega-3 fatty acids and omega-6 fatty acids, which are in meat the way we raise them today, meat has iron. So often I see patients with cancer who are treated with chemotherapy and become anemic from the chemotherapy. And they come in saying, Donald, I'm taking an iron supplement. And I say, please stop the iron. You're not iron deficient. If you're not iron deficient, iron feeds cancer. And that's one of the problems with red meat. Processed meats, of course, have nitrates and they are carcinogenic. And we live in a society that loves to barbecue. When you burn flesh, that creates heterocyclic amines, which also are carcinogenic. I'll have a half pound double deluxe bacon steer burger, please. You want chemotherapy with that? Funny, but not funny. What about meat trends in the United States? This is from the N. Haynes study, Natural Health and Nutrition Examination Survey. The mean consumption of processed meat has remained unchanged in the past 18 years. That's how much luncheon meat, sausage, hot dogs we consume. Mean consumption has declined for unprocessed red meat, beef, pork, and lamb. Mean consumption has increased for poultry, but no change at all for fish or shellfish. I'm a big believer in deep cold water fish. Salmon, black cod, albacore tuna, herring, mackerel, and sardines are the ones richest in the omega-3, fatty acids, which are anti-inflammatory and a little bit antidepressant. This is uh, from Walter Willett, who's Harvard's best nutrition investigative scientist. And it's an article that he wrote on milk in the New England Journal of Medicine two years ago. In the middle of the article, there's this graph of all-cause mortality associated with protein sources. And the dotted line for zero is dairy. And below dairy is plants, poultry, and fish. And above dairy is red meat, eggs, and off-the-chart processed meats. The average American eats 300 eggs a year. I eat one on Passover when we dip them in salt water. Well, what about dairy? That was the dotted line for zero. Walter Willett wrote an excellent article in the New England Journal. Dairy does contain some healthful products. Calcium, it's our richest source of calcium, often is fortified with vitamin D, and has other uh, components that may be uh, healthy for us. However, there's no other animal that drinks another species milk, but no other animal drives a car or goes to college either, so that's not a very good argument. But no animal drinks milk after they've been weaned. And by the age of three or four, we lose the ability to digest the sugars and the proteins in dairy. We make a big deal about fat, low fat, no fat, 2%. It's not the fat. If you want a dairy product, butter is probably best because it's mainly fat. We talk about lactose intolerance as if it's a disease or a disorder when in fact it's the norm. And the ability to digest lactose is actually a genetic mutation on the second chromosome found mainly in Scandinavians who needed to digest reindeer milk in times of freeze. 
the rest of us are all lactose intolerant and we don't know until we stop. But there's no mention of dairy in the American Institute for Cancer Research World Cancer Research Fund guidelines. Why is that? I once asked that too, because there are a number of positive associations, prostate cancer, breast cancer, but I guess the evidence has not been that convincing. Last week, my inbox was flooded with all sorts of articles, dairy causes cancer. And that's emanating from this large study, again, done in China. They recruited a half a million adults, five urban and five rural regions, uh, enrolled from 2004 to 2008, and they filled out food frequency questionnaires. With a median follow-up of 11 years, 30,000 cases of cancer were reported. Dairy consumption has increased in China, but is still less than 10% of the daily U.S. intake of milk. The cohort, uh, half a million people, 59% were women. Uh, Most of them were rural. Average baseline age was 52. 20% reported milk at least once a week. And they were defined as regular consumers compared with those who never or rarely consumed milk who were called non-consumers. The regular consumers were more likely to be women, have higher education and income, and had higher consumption of all major food groups except preserved vegetables. Dairy consumption was positively associated with the risk of total cancer, again, a 9% risk, but statistically significant, liver cancer, female breast cancer, as well as lymphoma. And the associations were independent of other lifestyle factors, including overweight obesity, and they were consistent across all of the subgroups. So maybe the American Institute for Cancer Research might re-evaluate if they're going to say anything about dairy or not. So with all this against eggs, against beef, against dairy, should you be a vegan? Well, Seventh-day Adventists are usually some sort of a vegetarian, and they did a study of 77,000 Adventists who developed uh, 380 cases of colon, and 110 cases of rectal cancer after a follow-up of seven years. They looked at the risk of developing these cancers in the vegetarians compared to the non-vegetarians. All colorectal cancer was decreased 22% in the vegetarians. Interestingly, in the vegans, it was only decreased 16%. Notice the pesco-vegetarians, those who ate fish in addition to vegetables, had almost a 40% reduction. So again, I don't think vegan is uh, the optimal diet. This is a a graph I put together on uh, comparative macronutrients of popular cancer diets. The IOM is what the Institute of Medicine recommends the breakdown of carbohydrates, fat, and protein should be in the ideal diet. That is about 60% carbohydrates. And when I say carbohydrates, Fruits, vegetables, whole grains, legumes, nuts, these are carbohydrates, not pasta, bread, and, you know, white rice and cookies and dessert. Uh, So 60% carbohydrates, 20% protein, 20% fat. Unfortunately, the standard American diet is overemphasizing fat with decreased intake of protein and fruits and vegetables, as we saw. The vegan diet is a little bit excess in carbohydrates, again, plant-based, with uh, perhaps not enough protein uh, and maybe just a a little bit short on fat. 
just want to point out in the middle there, the ketogenic diet, my least favorite of the popular diets that my cancer patients like to talk to me about is all fat and a little a bit of protein and no carbohydrates, which are really our healthiest foods. I, I don't want to bum people out here with this one, but in 2007, the alcohol guideline said, if consumed at all, limit alcohol to two a day for men and one a day for women. And to me, if at all, two a day seem really dichotomous, especially because I reached an age myself where I just don't tolerate alcohol. I don't metabolize it. I don't drink it. And we really mainstream alcohol consumption quite a bit in this country. In 2018, they took a bold step and said for cancer prevention, it's best not to drink alcohol. We believe that 6% of all cancer in the United States today is related to alcohol use. And the leading cause of death from alcohol in people over the age of 50 is now cancer. And a linear relationship. We wondered for so long why women in Marin County are more prone to develop breast cancer. Well, there is a linear relationship between alcohol consumption and the development of hormone receptor positive postmenopausal breast cancer. The another don't in the American Institutes, it says, don't use supplements to protect against cancer. And that comes from a lot of data from clinical trials of beta carotene, vitamin E, uh, folic acid that show that using those supplements actually increases the risk of cancer. So I do see a lot of patients coming to me with a shopping bag full of supplements saying, can I take this? And the real question that I'm being asked is, is there a potential interaction between this supplement and any of the cancer treatments that I may be taking. And that interaction would come through the cytochrome P450 enzyme system in the liver that breaks down both supplements, botanicals, as well as uh, pharmaceuticals. And then the other question is really, uh, radiation therapy creates free radicals of oxygen to knock into the tumor DNA and kill it. And some of our chemotherapy does the same thing. So if patients are taking antioxidant supplements, are they going to take those free radicals out of circulation, uh, negating the benefit of the radiation and the chemotherapy? So my general approach is that if our goal is to cure the patient of their cancer, or that we're giving chemotherapy in an adjuvant setting, that is after surgery, just to kill any circulating tumor cells uh, microscopically, then I would err on the side of caution and delay antioxidant supplements until the patient is done with their radiation or chemotherapy. Many of my colleagues at the cancer center tell their patients to discontinue their antioxidant supplement the day before, the day of, and the day after their chemotherapy, but that really doesn't take into account the half-life of either the chemo or the antioxidant. I think antioxidant-rich foods are always okay to eat. I have patients telling me that their radiation oncologist says, don't eat anything but white foods while you're getting radiation, devoid of any nutrients. I think if it comes down to that blueberry and that beam of radiation, it's clear that radiation wins. If the goal is palliation and we can't cure the cancer, and if the patient feels that they really want to take an antioxidant supplement, then I'm okay with that. The only blood test that I do on patients coming to see me at the Osher Center is usually a 25-hydroxy vitamin D level. Vitamin D deficiency puts patients at greater risk for cancer. 
And people with cancer who are vitamin D deficient don't do as well as people who are have a good vitamin D level. So that's the only thing I check. And I try to raise people vitamin D level into the range of 40 to 50 nanograms per milliliter. Many people uh, have a cancer that might affect their bones, either uh, through metastases or their hormonal manipulations are going to make them get osteopenia or osteoporosis. And since I ask people to avoid dairy, which is the richest source of calcium, I do recommend a calcium supplement. Calcium constipates, magnesium does the opposite. They're both good for bones and they're both good for protecting against colon cancer. So I say get a calcium magnesium supplement and if it comes with a little zinc, that probably wouldn't hurt either. I'm a big fan of omega-3 fatty acids, as I mentioned, in those deep cold water fish. But since most people are not gonna eat those fish every day, I'm gonna recommend an omega-3 supplement. I'm a big fan of medicinal mushrooms. Uh, these mushrooms have a beta-1,3 glucan cell wall that resembles a bacterial cell wall. And when patients take a medicinal mushroom capsule, their body is tricked into think, thinking it's being invaded by a bacteria and it mounts a nonspecific immune response to eradicate the bacteria, which we also hope will eradicate cancer. And mushrooms are widely used in Asia in conjunction with chemotherapy and radiation therapy. So uh, I'm a big fan of particularly turkey tail, Trimedes versicolor uh, as my mainstay anti-cancer mushroom. The first I heard about turmeric, the uh, uh, spice that gives most Indian curries its yellow coloration without really having much flavor. The flavor of a curry comes from the cumin, uh, fenner, geek, and uh, coriander. Was at our ASCO, American Society of Clinical Oncology meeting, about 20 years ago. Investigators at Ohio State have a mouse model of colon cancer, where the mice are genetically programmed to develop colon cancer. And if they're fed a turmeric-enriched diet, not only do they not develop colon cancer, but they survive longer than the control mice. Because turmeric is a potent anti-inflammatory and it's not well absorbed from the upper gastrointestinal tract. So it can get all the way down to the colon to do local chemo prevention. I tell patients that chemotherapy is a pretty big antibiotic and the microbiome we know is important for many things. So I tell them if you've had cytotoxic chemotherapy, it might be a good idea to take a supplemental probiotic. I like a refrigerated probiotic that contains lactobacillus and bifidobacterium species. And then I'm a big proponent of cannabis. Cannabis is a centuries old, millennium old uh, botanical that's been widely used as a folk medicine uh, for many years, only has been demonized in the United States uh, since uh, 1942 when it was removed from the US pharmacopoeia and it was placed in Schedule I uh, by the uh, Controlled Substances Act in 1970, saying it had no accepted medical use and a high potential for abuse, both of which, in my opinion, are totally incorrect. And when we look at our cancer patients' uh, symptoms, weight loss, cachexia, early satiety, anorexia, pain, anxiety, depression, nausea, vomiting, there's one intervention that I can recommend to patients, that being cannabis, without writing prescriptions for five or, five or six different pharmaceuticals that may all interact with each other or with the cancer treatment that I'm giving the patient. Recently, uh, there was an article uh, that looked at 612 women with breast cancer who responded to a survey 
uh, about their use of cannabis before, during, and after their treatment. 42% reported that they used cannabis for medical purposes. Only 23% said it was strictly medical, meaning that uh, 20% were using it also recreationally. Three quarters reported that they were extremely or very helpful, that it, cannabis was extremely or very helpful at relieving symptoms. And you can see the symptoms on the left, pain, insomnia, anxiety, stress, nausea, and vomiting. 79% used cannabis during their cancer treatment. And again, over 50% continued to use it after they completed therapy. Unfortunately, half of the participants also said that cannabis was useful in treating the cancer itself, which is, I think, a misconception uh, that we need to address. So as I mentioned, cannabis is a very versatile botanical that's been around for millennia. And when I first started to be interested in studying cannabis, my colleagues in oncology said, gee, Donald, in these days of nanotechnology and genomic therapies, why would you be interested in studying a plant? So imprecise, contains so many different chemicals. And they are right. Uh, it, cannabis contains over 400 different chemicals, including 120 21 carbon terpenophenolic compounds known as cannabinoids. In addition to the cannabinoids, cannabis also contains terpenoids, which give each strain its characteristic odor, limonene, pinene, myrcene, beta-caryophylline. Uh, all of these also may have some potential therapeutic benefit. And in addition, like many other plant materials, uh, cannabinoid or cannabis has flavonoids, which also may have therapeutic benefit. Probably the most well-known of the cannabinoids is Delta-9 tetrahydrocannabinol, or THC, which gives the plant its psychoactivity. Jumping into first place in the most favored cannabinoid uh, list nowadays is cannabidiol, or CBD, which probably is present in the plant to modulate the activity of THC, i.e. decreasing its psychoactivity, and in my opinion, also decreasing some of its therapeutic benefit. CBN or cannabinol is a breakdown product of old Delta-9 THC. So if anybody went to college and had old cannabis lying around and you smoked it, you said, oh my God, I'm sleepy. That's because CBN seems to be quite soporific. THCV or tetrahydrocannabivirine is an interesting cannabinoid if we're going to study isolated cannabinoids as opposed to the whole plant because it decreases appetite, decreases appetite for food, for alcohol, and also for opiates. So we and all animal species down through sea squirts have two cannabinoid receptors, so-called cannabinoid 1, CB1, and CB2. The CB1 receptor is the most densely populated seven transmembrane domain G-protein coupled receptor in the human brain. And one benefit of doing Zoom lectures is I've lectured to groups of physicians and I've asked them in a poll how many of you learned about this in medical school? And the answer is five to 10%. So that shows you the extent of reefer madness that we don't teach doctors about the most densely populated receptor in the human brain. Well, why do we in all animals have these receptors, CB1 and CB2, CB2 being present mainly in cells of the immune system? It's not that sea squirts, monkeys, and dogs were meant to smoke cannabis. It's because we make our own endogenous cannabinoids, endocannabinoids, like we make our own endogenous opiates, the endorphins. And it's felt that the whole system of endogenous cannabinoids and cannabinoid receptors 
is to help us modulate the experience of pain. So I'm often asked uh, by my patients, what should I take and how should I take it? And I often see older women with cancer who go to a dispensary and they're told, they, they think that smoking is bad and eating is good. So they're told only eat a quarter of the cookie and they do and nothing happens. So they eat another quarter and nothing happens. So they eat the whole cookie. And then they have an ego dysphoric reaction. And they call me three days later saying they're never going to do that again. Well, when you take Delta 9 THC by mouth, it takes two and a half hours to reach a peak concentration. And the Delta 9 THC, when it's taken by mouth, goes through the liver where the cytochrome P450 system metabolizes it into an even more psychoactive 11-hydroxy metabolite. That's why people get more zonked when they do edibles than when they inhale. When you inhale cannabis, either smoking, a bong, or vaporizer, the peak plasma concentration of THC is reached in two and a half minutes as opposed to two and a half hours. And because less of it is going through the liver, you don't make that other psychoactive metabolite. So I tell patients, if you want better control over the onset, the depth, and the duration of the effect, inhalation is probably better than oral ingestion. And when I say vaporizing, I'm not talking about a vape pen. I am an oncologist, so I am conservative. And I know the long-term effects of inhaling a plant, but I don't know the long-term effects of inhaling an oil. And I think we've demonstrated that it's not probably healthy. Nowadays, most dispensaries <clears throat> provide tinctures. Tinctures are oils, liquids. When you put them in your mouth, you immediately absorb some from under your tongue, which reproduces the effect of inhalation. And then you swallow the rest. So you reproduce the effect of oral ingestion. So I think <clears throat> the best sort of hybrid kinetics comes from using a tincture or an oil. People are now using topical uh, cannabis products. I guess they work, I'm bewildered as to how they do. And many of my patients make their own suppositories out of coconut oil and they claim that they work pretty good as well. So where does this notion come from that cannabis is an anti-cancer agent? Investigators at Virginia Commonwealth University published in the Journal of the National Cancer Institute in 1975, a report that Delta-9 THC, Delta-8 THC, and cannabinol all inhibited Lewis lung adenocarcinoma cell growth in vitro and in mice. Interestingly, CBD did not. It actually increased the growth of those tumors. Since that time, there's been an increasing body of preclinical evidence in the test tube and in animals suggesting that cannabinoids may have some anti-cancer activity. And cannabis itself is an antioxidant and anti-inflammatory, two things that I often look for to recommend in my cancer patients. Manuel Guzman has a laboratory in Madrid that studies the effects of cannabinoids on metabolism. And the most metabolically active cells in the body are the brain cells. So his lab would add cannabinoids to brain cells in culture, rat brain, and see what happens. And they said, maybe we can do this faster if we do a brain tumor. So they grew up a brain tumor and they added the cannabinoids and everything died. They said, oh, we must have done something wrong. So they did it again and everything died. <clears throat> they said, maybe this is a bad batch of cannabinoids. So they went back to the normal brain and everything lived. So what they've determined since then is that the cannabinoids complex with the 
cannabinoid receptor on the tumor and tell the tumor cell to commit suicide. In addition, they've also demonstrated that cannabinoids decrease or inhibit vascular endothelial growth factor, which allows new blood vessels to form to let a tumor grow bigger. And in addition, cannabinoids block the activity of an enzyme called matrix metalloproteinase 2, which allows cancer cells to become invasive and metastasized. All of that happens in the test tube. Now, if you take mice who don't have an immune system and you transplant human tumors into them, all of those different tumor types, lung, breast, colorectal, pancreas, skin, melanoma, lymphoma, thyroid, and brain tumors can all be inhibited by cannabinoids. The only evidence that's currently available in the medical literature that cannabinoids of any sort do anything in any patient with cancer other than symptom improvement is a very small study conducted in Europe published last year. Nabiximols is a whole plant extract with a one-to-one ratio of THC to CBD. It's licensed and approved throughout Europe, Canada, uh, the UK, Australia, and New Zealand for treating spasticity in patients with multiple sclerosis. Not approved in the US because no study done here has shown any benefit. So in this study of patients with recurrent glioblastoma, the most aggressive brain tumor, nine patients use this under the tongue spray, nabiximols, and nine use placebo in addition to standard chemotherapy. At six months, two thirds of both groups had progressed. However, at one year, 83% of the group using the one-to-one ratio were alive compared to only 44% in the placebo group. And the investigators are careful to point out that the study is not really big enough to make any definitive statement about survival, but it is an interesting signal and they are doing a larger follow-on study. So, Let's go back to the guidelines. Uh, Don't use uh, uh, supplements to protect against cancer. Uh, What about following the guidelines? Do they really make a difference? And again, the French study looked at 41,000 people and they found that uh, they looked at scoring. And if you got one one point better on the score that they gave you for how well you followed the American Institute for Cancer Research guideline, you had a 12% decrease in the risk of overall cancer, 14% risk decrease in the risk of breast, 12% decrease in prostate cancer. And for colorectal cancer, it was close, but not statistically significant. The final guideline that I wanted to mention is uh, another uh, do. After cancer uh, treatment, cancer survivors should follow the recommendations for cancer prevention. Actually, let me just stop for a minute on the word prevention. One of my dear friends is Robert Bazell, who used to be the NBC News science correspondent. And Robert told me, Donald, if you do anything as an integrative oncologist, can you please get over the concept that cancer can be prevented? You can reduce the risk of cancer, but you can't necessarily prevent it. And I see patients all the time who say, I did everything I could to prevent my cancer and I got it anyway. And this makes people feel guilty and they blame themselves. And if you have a cancer diagnosis, that's the last thing you need. So I always have asked, can we change prevention at the National Cancer Institute? I ask, 
can you just change cancer prevention to risk reduction? And they said, more people understand prevention than risk reduction. So <clears throat> does it really matter after a cancer diagnosis? How many patients come to me and say, I asked my oncologist what I should eat and what's the answer? The oncologist always says, eat whatever you want. It doesn't really matter. So we collect, when we see patients live uh, in, the, in the old days, uh, we would collect a new patient intake form and ask them what they ate for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And you can see this person who only eats two meals a day and snacks on occasional ice cream really has a bit uh, a distance to go. So does it really make a difference? Jeffrey Meyerhart at Harvard did a study many years ago of patients with stage three colon cancer. And they did a very uh, intensive food frequency questionnaire. And he divided them into people who ate a predominantly Western diet and those who ate a more prudent diet. And this chart shows you uh, that the people on the left uh, in the group labeled one had the lowest uh, ratio or the lowest uh, Western diet pattern, whereas the group on the right labeled five had the highest Western diet pattern. And they followed these uh, patients for five years for recurrence of their cancer and death. And you can see that the group that ate the most Western diet had a threefold increase in recurrence of their cancer and twice the death of the groups that ate a less Western diet. So this group in group five ate one serving of red meat a day, five refined grains and two sugary desserts. Whereas this group ate red meat a few times a week, two refined grains a day and sugary desserts three times a week. So a big difference. And in fact, uh, this same uh, study was re-evaluated looking at something called dietary insulin load. Foods with a high food insulin index evoke a stronger plasma insulin response. We've already spoken about insulin and insulin-like growth factor. So they calculated the dietary insulin load from the food frequency questionnaire as well as this food insulin index. Higher dietary insulin load was associated with worse disease-free survival, recurrence-free survival, and overall survival. The magnitude of the association was highest in the obese patients, and this association with outcome was independent of the Western versus prudent dietary pattern that I showed in the previous slide. So it is sugar, insulin, insulin resistance, insulin-like growth factor. So what do I think the ideal diet should be? I think it should be organic. A plant grown outdoors organically needs to fight to protect itself from other plants, birds and insects, and the sunshine. And the only way a plant knows how to protect itself is by making chemicals called phytoalexins. And those phytoalexins turn out to be the phytonutrients that benefit us. In addition, you avoid the herbicides, pesticides, and fertilizers, which are chemicals that we don't need in our body. The diet should be plant-based, but I don't think you need to be vegetarian, vegan, or raw. Antioxidant-rich, whole foods. So many patients want to juice, juice, fruit, no. Even smoothies, I don't think so. All of these are the anti-inflammatory diet. So I say increase plant-based foods, particularly heavily pigmented fruit, the berries are all good, cruciferous vegetables, whole grains and nuts, 
decrease animal fats, eliminating dairy, red and processed meat and eggs. Poultry should be organic and eggs, if you must have them, should be organic omega-3. Increase deep cold water fish. Decrease white sugar, white flour, white rice, brown sugar too, it's all sugar. Season with ginger, garlic, onions, and turmeric. And if uh, beverages, green tea, and if you'd consume alcohol, red wine would be the best beverage. Nearly 50% of the most common cancers can be prevented. The doctor of the future will give no medicine, but will interest his patient in the care of the human body, in diet, and in the cause and prevention of disease. I don't think we're there yet. And even earlier than that, Hippocrates is the one who said, let your food be your medicine and your medicine be your food. So bon appetit and thank you for your attention. Thank you so much, Dr. Abrams. That was a really um, thorough travel through nutrition and and, uh, supplements and cannabis. So we have lots of questions. I'm gonna jump right into it. One clarification on fiber and sugar. So is eating an orange fiber plus sugar better than squeezing out the sugar via juicing the orange in terms of cancer risk? And there's a related question from Arjita. Yeah, again, I say eating the orange is better than drinking the juice. And I think I showed good evidence that fruit juice is associated with an increased risk of cancer. Although the American Institute for Cancer Research, World Cancer Research Fund, changed it from sugary drinks to sugar-sweetened drinks. Orange juice, I don't think, is a sugar-sweetened drink. It's a sugary drink. So, yes, eat the orange. I mean, I... I used to squeeze three oranges every day. Now I do two oranges once a week. I did it yesterday. I'm here to talk about it. My guidelines are guidelines to keep the soil as inhospitable as possible. I think if you drink orange juice, you're not going to fall over dead. And actually, someone later had asked um, for people suffering with cancer, let's say they uh, can't actually consume it well, is juicing okay? Yeah, I mean, again, when I see a patient that everybody has their own individual unique uh, issues. Some people cannot swallow solids, especially patients who are getting radiation therapy, uh, you know, have severe mouth sores and ulcers and they can't eat solid food or people who have a a restriction in their esophagus. So, you know, we want those people to be able to eat food. I always say blenderize a nice soup and eat that as opposed to a fruit juice. Perfect. Lucy asks, some of my patients here in San Francisco cannot afford fish or organic fruits and vegetables. What say you? Yeah, I say that I said it already. I think it's a shame that our government subsidizes bad food instead of, you know, making healthy food more widely available. It's this is a question that I was asked every time I lectured to the third year medical students at Zuckerberg, San Francisco General. They say, what about our patients here? Because, you know, healthy food, unfortunately, costs money. You know, I think we're worth it. And if we think about the money we save, if people would eat healthy instead of not, uh, as far as medical costs, maybe we'd be able to return some of that uh, to make uh, healthy food more affordable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, I'm, I'm not a politician, so I can't answer that one. Yeah, And I think importantly, um, there may be resources at cancer centers, including UCSF, to help patients potentially with some of uh, those resources in San Francisco area and other areas. But I agree, it's a real issue. Um, 
So this question from Bobby, we're not going to give any personal advice, but to generalize it, for people with um, large, advanced, inoperable cancers who have cachexia, um, is it should those folks keep proteins low? And if they're losing muscle and fat, is there anything else particular to recommend? Yeah, I you know I'm not a dietitian. I actually am an oncologist, so I don't know the answer to that. You know, I, I think. People that are trying to build muscle often do like to have excessive protein. Uh, I know that my patients tell me that the chemotherapy nurse tells them that when they're getting chemotherapy, they have to have, you know, 40 or 60 or 80 grams of protein. I, I am not a dietitian. I really am an oncologist. I just masquerade as a nutrition expert, but uh, I don't know the answer to that question, I'd have to say. Yeah. And I think importantly, for anything particular, it's always the best idea to go to your particular oncologist and your nutritionist to get those uh, yeah. answers for you. Um, all right. Someone asked, is there an amount of soy that is too much? Well, again, the recommendation is a, a one portion of a whole soy food a day. So soybean, soy milk, tofu, tempeh, or miso. I don't want to, you know, have to eat too many, you know, soy three times a day would probably be too much. I think in general, I try to point out that it's the diet is synergistic. If you eat only the same thing all the time, that's not really giving you the benefit of eating a broad spectrum of different foods in different colors, et cetera. Perfect. Yeah. Thank, thanks, Donald. Um, Lindsay asks, or Lindsay uh, gives us a suggestion, which is don't you think it's an oversimplification to use the PET scan as a rationalization for no sugar? Our bodies will continue to make glucose from our foods to fuel itself, even if no sugar is consumed. Of course. I find yeah. that patients almost always want to eat carbs during chemotherapy because of nausea. The panic about sugar causes a lot of stress. She's a registered dietitian, and so she says she stresses high-quality carbs. Yeah, no, everything we eat turns to sugar. Ultimately, it's a question of how quickly it turns to sugar. Uh, I don't know how that's an oversimplification. You inject people with radiolabeled sugar and it goes right to the cancer. It doesn't go particularly to normal tissues because normal tissue uses oxygen for burning and not sugar. So, uh, and I have worked very hard with a nurse, may she rest in peace, who used to work in the infusion center to get them to eliminate uh, sugary foods as snacks in the infusion center. I mean, when I see patients, they would say that they would come back to me and say, how could the infusion center serve us these things? And I think they did for a while try to be more conscious. I don't know what they're doing now because I'm quite distant from the infusion center. But yeah, again, you're not going to fall over dead if you eat a piece of candy or take some ice cream on your birthday. But my advice is for people how to keep their soil as inhospitable as possible to growth and spread of the weed. Today, I saw a woman with pancreatic cancer and she said, uh, you know, I know that nutrition is not gonna cure me. She has metastatic disease. And she said, I happen to love sugar and I'm gonna eat it because it improves my quality of life. And when I see people like that who have an incurable uh, disease, uh, you know, I lost my two best friends to pancreatic cancer and I'm not going to tell people not to eat foods that they love or calories that they need. But for other people where the goal is to try to keep the soil as inhospitable as possible, sugar is the number one no. Just look at the guidelines, how they're 
on that handout, how they're arranged. Number one, be a healthy weight. Number two, exercise. Number three on the, on the AICR is avoid sugar sweetened beverages, which I should think should be avoid sugary drinks. Thank you, Dr. Abrams. Victoria asks, does it matter what kind of dairy we consume? For example, cow cheese versus sheep or goat cheese? Nope. Those are all dairy. They all come from different animals than your mother. <clears throat> the one guideline that I didn't mention said breastfeed and be breastfed. And the reason I didn't mention that is because for most people, I see it's a little late to have that conversation. But, you know, we are meant to drink our mother's milk. And by the age of three or four, as I said, we lose the ability to digest the sugars and the proteins in dairy. We make a big deal about fat, low fat, no fat, 2%. It's not the fat. If you want a dairy product, butter is probably best because it's mainly fat. Yogurt, the sugars and the proteins have been altered by the bacteria. So if you need a dairy product, I like butter because it's mainly fat or yogurt or kefir, as long as they're not artificially flavored, artificially colored and with added sugar. Someone asks, could you please comment on intermittent or prolonged fasting for a vegetarian non-keto cancer patient? Yeah, so fasting has become very popular as something that people living with and beyond cancer want to do. The the rationale behind fasting, if you're getting chemotherapy, suggests that if you fast, your normal cells are going to be less likely to take up the toxic chemotherapy and the cancer cells are going to be more likely. You know, I don't know how that really works. And I haven't been impressed uh, that that is uh, really what's happening. And I know that there are fasting mimicking diets that they try to do where they send you for five days. First day you get 800 calories and the next uh, four days you get 400 calories in meals that you're sent. And it's supposed to be done with your cancer treatment. You know, personally, as an oncologist for 39 years, I've cured many people of cancer who didn't fast. And I know that I only fast one day a year. And by the, the, the time that I'm going to break my fast, I'm cranky, dizzy, have a headache and feel miserable. So why would I want people living with cancer treatment to go through that? On the other hand, I see patients who tell me no side effects at all when I fasted before my chemotherapy. I'm just not impressed that it does anything, you know, really of benefit. The only thing in all animal species that's associated with prolonged survival is caloric restriction. And I think we as a society have difficulty controlling our portion size. So, you know, rather than control the portion size, we say, oh, I'm going to skip this meal and not eat breakfast. Personally, I think breakfast is probably the most important meal of the day because it provides us with fuel And it prevents us from overeating in the middle of the day. So I have not embraced, just as I haven't embraced the ketogenic diet, I am not a big fan of intermittent fasting. Now, I mentioned obesity and overweight. And I see patients all the time who are BMIs of 35, 40. And, you know, those people do find it hard to lose weight. And in some situations, fasting may be useful. Even ketogenic diets may be useful for weight loss. So I'm not completely closed-minded. It's just not something I recommend to everybody. 
Thank you. Marla asks, do you suggest not eating eggs as a vegetarian? I thought eating organic eggs were a good source of protein. And I'll just add that, you know, many of the studies that were done were likely not using organic eggs. And so yeah, how do you tell, think about I tell that? patients if they want to eat eggs, they should be organic omega-3. <clears throat> I think eggs are associated clearly with prostate cancer, <clears throat> probably with uh, breast cancer. I think it's the choline in eggs, which is the bad actor. People ask, is it the egg yolk or the egg white? I think the egg white is probably better, but it's still egg and still, I, I know some of my dietitian colleagues don't agree with me, but I'm just reading what I read in the literature and they don't seem to be a good, I think we have a very strong egg lobby as we have a very strong milk lobby in this country. Um, great points. And I think one of your points is really important, which is there will be some differences of opinion here. And so uh, it's important for you to take your particular case and questions yeah. your physicians as well. Um, great. So Astrid asks, what are your thoughts on vitamin C supplements? Vitamin C? Yeah, it's, uh, it is an antioxidant. So I tell people getting radiation that they shouldn't take vitamin C. I did a, a, a nutrition uh, research or uh, diet diet and nutrition practicum at the National Cancer Institute. I was uh, the only one who was a physician. Uh, most of them were dietitians. And the one thing that I learned about vitamin C there was that the maximum amount of vitamin C that you can absorb from an oral dose is 240 milligrams. So I take vitamin C myself. It's a good stress vitamin. I think it's good for immunity. Uh, I don't recommend it for people getting chemotherapy or radiation that's creating free radicals of oxygen, but I don't think you need to overdose and take uh, one or two or three grams because you're peeing out most of that. And I'm not a believer in the intravenous vitamin C, which many people suggest uh, may have some anti-cancer activity. I just haven't seen that. Yeah, the, the data hasn't supported it. Um, someone mentions, for clarification, often radiation oncologists will recommend white foods for patients who are experiencing loose stools related to radiation side effects, as they often are better tolerated. I agree. I would not recommend for antioxidant purposes. And again, I, I also want in favor of my radiation oncology colleagues, uh, I'm a big fan of cruciferous vegetables, and that produces in many people gas. And if you're getting radiation to your rectal cancer, you don't want to have gas in your colon because it's going to change the beam, I guess. So, yeah, I mean, if the goal is cure, then I think you need to listen to, uh, you know, the people that are telling you what you need to do. The next question is, in my culture, caviar is viewed as a very healing um, food, and my family is wanting me to eat this, but let's just ask it more broadly. Um, is it okay to eat caviar during chemotherapy? I guess if you can afford it, I don't see any reason why not. <laughs> That's it's, not, not it's not egg eggs. It's not coming from chickens that are fed food that makes them make the fat into omega-6. It's coming from wild oceans, I guess. Yeah. And I think she was asking because it's a raw food. And so she said, during chemotherapy, should I be eating any raw foods? Yeah, I think that's a, a little bit of an old wives' tale. Personally, I don't think you really get infected from sushi. <clears throat> you know, I, I think that's overstated. Uh, perfect. Thank you. Jessica Moore asks, is coffee on the do's or don'ts list? Well, it's not mentioned. 
<clears throat> coffee is not mentioned. I say coffee is good for the brain and the heart, but it doesn't have the anti-cancer activity of green tea. Uh, tea is the name of the beverage brewed from the tea leaf, the Chinese camellia, the camellia sinensis. And it's graded on how oxidized the leaf is before the beverage is brewed. White, green, oolong, black, and poo air. And the only two that have the cancer-fighting chemicals are white and green. So I drink four cups of green tea every morning, and the rest of my day, my beverage is sparkling mineral water. <clears throat> but coffee, uh, in the old days when I was a young oncologist, we thought coffee might cause pancreatic cancer. And nowadays we think coffee might decrease the risk of colon cancer, particularly people that drink more than four cups of coffee a day, which I say, well, yeah, your colon would be empty if you drank that much coffee. But people tend to put two things in coffee that I'm not in favor of, sugar and dairy. Thank you, Dr. Abrams. Shadi asks, with your list of supplements, vitamin D, Cal Mag, Omega, mushrooms, turmeric, etc., is it safe to take all those during active treatment with chemotherapy and radiation? And I'll just add that these are commonly used supplements, but Dr. Abrams, obviously there's no personal advice that's being given here. Yeah, again, when I see people individually, I, I take into account what their treatment is and what, what regimens they're getting and, and I modify it. So antioxidants, as I mentioned, we wouldn't do during chemo and radiation. <clears throat> Every day I see patients told by their medical oncologist, their radiation oncologist, or the infusion center nurse, stop all your supplements. I tell them to take them and they tell them to stop. So it puts the patient in a little bit of a bind. If I tell a patient to take something, I think it's okay for them to take it when they're getting chemo or radiation. So omegas, as long as you're not bleeding, omega-3s might increase the risk of bleeding if you take over four grams a day. Vitamin D should be fine anytime. Calcium, too much calcium supplementation can lead to more aggressive prostate cancer in men. Turmeric, there's a lot of information that people are saying turmeric interacts uh, with tamoxifen and all sorts of things. I'm a, a scientific advisor uh, to the website Wellcasa. Uh, and on Wellcasa, you can find uh, information about potential interactions between supplements and your pharmaceuticals. Uh, again, uh, that's something that may be useful for people and I need to look at it more myself. Uh, so turmeric is a, a little bit, you need to be somewhat concerned. Probiotic, I used to tell patients who are getting immunotherapy, don't take a probiotic <clears throat> because there were studies that suggested that uh, probiotics People who have taken probiotics have less of a profound response or beneficial response to immunotherapy. And now there was just a review on probiotics and the microbiome in cancer, and they suggest taking a probiotic may improve the response to immunotherapy. I actually sent an email to the author and asked that question, and they, did, they thanked me for saying that they wrote a good review, but they didn't answer the question because I think they're medical students or something. But... Uh, mushrooms stimulate the immune system. So I don't want patients on immunotherapy to take the medicinal mushrooms. And I don't like people with a cancer of the immune system, i.e. chronic lymphocytic leukemia or lymphoma to take medicinal mushrooms either. It's just my own feeling. It's not proven in any research. So uh, yeah. And then 
There was also an Israeli study suggesting that people who use cannabis during the new immunotherapies didn't have as good a response and actually died two years quicker than people who didn't use cannabis with their immunotherapy. I think the flaw in this study, which was not randomized, placebo-controlled, but a retrospective observational study, was that most of the patients not using cannabis were getting immunotherapy as a first-line treatment compared to those who were using it who were getting it as second or third line. And I think that's what creates the difference in response and survival. So yeah, so that's why I see patients and talk to them about what their treatment regimen is and okay, for you, I'm going to recommend this. That's super important details. Um, Thank you for answering that. Uh, Danielle says, you mentioned at one point that iron feeds cancer. Would you recommend that people should not cook in cast iron? Yeah, I think that's, uh, that is sort of a recommendation that, that, you know, again, I'm not a chef and I'm not a a nutritionist. So uh, I think, you know, I, I don't know how much iron you get in cast iron. I'm talking about taking an iron supplement or eating a nice piece of red meat. I don't know how much you actually absorb from the cast iron. Yeah. Yeah, it's a good question. I don't either. Um, what about fermented foods, kimchi, sauerkraut, etc.? Do they help with the microbiome in patients with cancer? Yeah, those are prebiotic foods and they're very good. Uh, people that have GI distress, either after their chemo or radiation, I often recommend a probiotic as well as concentrating on prebiotic foods, sauerkraut, pickles, kimchi, etc. Yep. Um, and then someone just comments, I was told to not eat sushi during chemo. I love it so much, but I stopped eating it. Um, but sounds like you. Yeah, I don't. I, okay. I know people are telling that and that used to say you shouldn't have flowers in your room. And I think all of that is sort of a little bit been proven not to be over cautious, I think. Patricia asks, is eating mushrooms as beneficial as taking it as a supplement? And okay, yeah, maybe thank you. you. That's a really important question because one point that I didn't get to make, all mushrooms should be cooked. Slicing white button mushrooms and throwing them in a salad is a no. White button mushrooms have a cancer-causing compound in them. So all mushrooms must be cooked. Actually, you don't get the benefits of the nutrients in the mushroom if you eat them raw. And white buttons have a cancer-causing compound in them. So the mushrooms that I like for immune enhancement are not edible. They're like sort of like shellac and, and, or fuzzy, and they're not things that you would eat. Uh, you get them in Chinatown and people make them into teas. I don't think that's quite as concentrated and potent as taking a mushroom capsule. So excellent question. Edible mushrooms that I like are shiitake, maitake, and enoki because they are immune enhancing and perhaps have some anti-cancer activity. Enoki are the long, white, filamentous ones that are in miso soup. And this is what led us to find out that mushrooms have some anti-cancer activity because the farmers in Japan who work with enoki mushrooms have lower rates of cancer than their neighbors. And so that's what led to the investigation of how these medicinal mushrooms might work against cancer. All mushrooms must be cooked. And related to that, actually, where do you recommend patients get medicinal mushrooms? The body doesn't like to see the same mushroom every day. So I tell people who are trying to do immune enhancement to get turkey tail 
and take that for four to six weeks, which gives you the maximum benefit, and then switch to a seven mushroom blend that he humbly named after himself, Stamet Seven, and take that for four to six weeks, and then go back to the turkey tail back and forth. And I have patients who tell me, gee, everybody in my house got sick, but I didn't because I'm taking my mushrooms because they are immune enhancing. And last question is, what is an optimal breakfast? (laughs) Okay, I have three breakfasts. I eat broccoli, tofu, and rice, number one. My second one is mochi, which is just pounded brown rice. Puff it up in the oven, smear almond butter, and put a sweet potato on top of it because orange, yellow vegetables are also good for you. And then when I travel and I'm not near my stove, I do muesli, which is the only unsweetened cereal with rice milk or oat milk, blueberries, and walnuts. Well, that is a perfect close. Um, You have all of Dr. Abrams's um, secrets now with you. Uh, That was really wonderful. Thank you so much, Dr. Abrams. Super jam-packed with information that I think was practical and helpful. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.